The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, Alec. Hi. How's it going? I have your book right here. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm thrilled that you're on the show. Okay, I will uh, hit play on the end. We have a new sponsor, Main Street, uh, and then we can jump right into the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Alec McGillis is the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, a terrific, terrific new book about Amazon's impact on our economy and society, and more broadly about how our society concentrates power and wealth in the hands of the few and makes it extremely difficult for others to break through. He is also a senior reporter at ProPublica. Alec, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so so why don't we start with the news? So um, Amazon's been flailing a bit with its PR strategy. Now, on Twitter, it was taunting the members of the Senate and a member of the Congress uh, and basically said to one of them, you don't believe our workers really pee in bottles, do you? <laughs> and Amazon workers were like, uh, yeah, we do. And they were sending pictures of those bottles to Vice, and then they leaked a memo of a manager reprimanding them for uh, leaving um, for pooping in bags and leaving them in, in the vans, uh, and they lead that to the intercept. Uh, and Amazon looked pretty stupid. And this all stems from a union drive in Bessemer, Alabama, where uh, a massive fulfillment center is in the midst of a drive. They've actually already voted uh, to unionize, and we'll, I, I imagine, we'll find out the outcome of what's going on there any day now. Um, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. You know, your book is about fulfillment. You know, no, no, uh, no coincidence. Amazon calls their uh, warehouses fulfillment centers, um, and this is what I think is the biggest attempt to unionize one of those to date, or the most serious one. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to turn it over to you. What's going on there? Oh, it's just. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment, really. That, and I, you know, you always wish when you're writing a book about that somewhat contemporary that that it would go to press a little later. In this case, I really wish the Bush, the book had, had uh, gone to press after this development closed right before this news came out, this extraordinary news that, that, um, that a union had managed to get enough support to hold an election. First time we've ever had, had an election at a full Amazon warehouse. And, um, and it's incredible that it's happening in, uh, in the deep South, Although not as incredible as people, I think maybe think that Alabama is actually, as deep southern states go, has somewhat more history of of union organizing than than, than other than its neighboring states, um, and of course has, has the history of the steel industry there. And, and Bessemer itself is of course named after the man who invented the modern steel making process, Henry Bessemer. Um, and so we have this election there, and um, first time ever. For, for Amazon, that we've got to this point, and and it's 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 still it's going to be incredibly tough. I mean, it, I, I think there's been a lot of excitement around this, um, understandably. Um, that think, I think some of the excitement has has somewhat overlooked the how stiff the odds still were for these for these organizers. There, um, you have Amazon pulling out all the stops to. To block this thing, including a, a crucial fact that gets, I think, often missed is that the the number of, of people voting in this election is is really quite large. It's you know fifty eight hundred or so eligible five thousand workers. Plus. Yeah, yeah, which which you know that that number is so big because Amazon has fought to make it that big and has has fought to include a whole swath of workers that you you know that are arguably basically more sort of supervisor types, um, but have They've, they've kind of gotten them into that pool, which, of course, makes it harder for the union to get a majority because the, the more you grow that denominator, um, the harder it is to, to get a majority. Um, but it's but we'll see. I mean, I would just say before we get into how Amazon's going to fight it, the interesting thing is like what they're actually unionizing for uh, inside this fulfillment center. So typically when you think of a union drive, the union will push for higher wages. 
And maybe that's part of it. But Amazon's minimum wage is double the federal minimum wage, $15 compared to, I think, $7.25. And what the push is actually going on here is that they want better working conditions. They want a little bit more flexibility, maybe more break time, if I'm reading it right. Um, isn't that kind of fascinating that that's what the union union drives have moved to with Amazon? Why do you think that's necessary? Well, it's necessary because these jobs are just so incredibly demanding. And the um, it, and I, we, we should note that pay is definitely still a part of what they're fighting for. Um, they workers, Amazon workers across the country are upset that they that they lost the two dollar bump that they got um, at the start of the pandemic. The first couple of months of the pandemic, Amazon gave gave them two dollars extra, so they were up to seventeen, and then that was taken away very quickly. Um, and and so workers look at at the company making just extraordinary profits this past year. Um, Bezos's personal wealth just up 50, 60 billion, and they and and they're back to the same wage that they were at you know a couple of years ago. So that 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 definitely is part of it. But but yes, they're also fighting for better conditions. They're fighting to just basically have more say in how the job is done in these warehouses. Um, you have the jobs are. There was a really good quote in the Times the other day from someone who used to work in the, in the Amazon warehouse and is now writing a dissertation on it for his. Um, doctorate in Minnesota, and just talk about how they're completely different. They've replaced retail jobs, but they're completely different than retail jobs. They're they're sort of physically taxing and relentless in a way that that retail jobs were not, and they really are more like factory jobs. And but they're not paid like factory jobs, and or they're certainly not paid like factory jobs um, used to be. And and so that that's really. You know what's at stake here is that you have this new kind of work. It's a work kind of work that that we've never had at the scale to have warehouse work, uh, fulfillment work um, at this enormous scale that Amazon has now kind of created. And sort of how what that work is going to be like, just how just how physically relentlessly demanding um, it's going to be, how how much you're going to be under the constant thumb of of really high performance quotas or yeah, and then on top of that, just incredibly high kind of surveillance of your performance, um, minute by minute, and and then and how how you're going to be compensated for it is that's sort of what we're fighting over now. It's this new kind of mass work, and and what it's going to look like, and, and what it's actually going to be like on a you know day to day basis for these for these workers. Yeah, you live in Baltimore, pretty close to where one of these. Bethlehem steel plants has, you know, not been taken down, and uh, you know a fulfillment center has gone up on the same land. Um, so, what about your your personal experience made you interested in writing a book like this? Really taking a look at, and we're going to get into a little bit more in terms of like what these jobs are like. And um, I mean, I think there's a pretty good understanding about what the jobs are like, but really what what it means for our economy that these are like. You know the the I imagine the fastest growing job category in the country. Amazon's added like what a million a million workers in the last ten years. Um, but before we get into that, what about your personal experience? What about your viewpoint of the world made you feel like this was something that was worth locking in on and writing a book about? Well, it really had nothing to do with Amazon at the start. It was my upset, my anger, really over 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 simply seeing the gaps and wealth that were being created around the country um, in its, its regional inequality, regional disparities between places that have, were growing bigger than we've ever had, really had before. We've always had richer, poorer places in the country, but not, not at the level that we have now. And, and for me, a lot of it did have to do with Baltimore. It had to do with seeing, um, moving back and forth between Baltimore and Washington uh, quite a bit these last 20 years that I've been in, in that region. Um, and 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 now being back in Baltimore for the past eight years as a resident, and and watching this this incredible divide grow with Washington just forty miles down the road, um, where we're now to travel between the two of them is just utterly disorienting. Um, they're just so wildly disparate in their prosperity and prospects, and and then wanting to write about those those divides, which I felt so viscerally and felt felt were just so terrible for the country because they're bad for both people in both sorts of places. And then settling on Amazon as the sort of frame through which to tell that story. And, and, and Amazon, of course, is just so, was so, also so, um, 
really so close to the, the Baltimore Washington story in the sense that it's so infused in it um, because it, it of course, chose, has chosen Washington to be its second headquarters, this massive investment of, of high-paid jobs and, and capital investment in Washington that'll make a wealthy city even wealthier uh, and more expensive. And then, and then meanwhile, just up the road, um, the company has has built several warehouses in inc- an extraordinarily sort of symbolic, historically charged locations. One of first of which was in a former GM plant, um, and the second, of which second and now third of which were at the what used to be yes the largest largest steel plant in, steel mill in the world. Um, and and that sort of that place that the f- fact that we've now in this exact same piece of land gone from um, this massive steelworks where where you had workers doing really tough but well-paid work um, to now in that exact in that exact same spit of land um, working in a warehouse um, to me just was so so emblematic of of a, cer- a certain transformation of, of work and of and of um, really kind of just daily existence in, in our country and so it all kind of it all started there in Washington and Baltimore Washington yeah, and let's pull back a little bit. I mean, you talked about how you were mad about the the regional divides, the divides in income inequality. Um, can you set the stage and talk a little bit more about what that means, like what what that actually looks like in the U.S. right now? Sure. I mean, we've always had gaps. We, of course, we've always had places that were poorer, wealthier. But now, I mean, the numbers are very clear. It's 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 very it's. Um, Similar to how, how the gaps have grown on the income ladder, the 1%, the 99%, and all that. We've had similar spreading out happening, polarizing effect happening um, in, in geography. So uh, recently, as, as 1980, um, only small parts of the country were poor, had 20, median incomes that were 20% below the average or, or, or lower than 20% below. So only the Deep South and Appalachia were sort of fell below that that line, and only really small parts of the country had incomes that were twenty percent above the average um, or more. So D.C. some of the New York suburbs kind of fell above that line. Now, just you know, forty years later, have had massive growth at the extremes. So entire swaths of the country, including almost the whole Midwest, a lot of the Great Plains. Um, have incomes that are twenty percent below the average, um, or, or 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 poorer, and then and then basically the entire coasts now have um, incomes that are twenty percent above or higher, and, and places that were already wealthy before, like DC, are now just off the charts. Like DC's median income is Metro DC's median income is something like fifty or seventy percent above the average, and and so you've had this. This mm-hmm. spreading out of effect there, and then and then and then so much also has to do with where the wealth is. That you used to have in the sixties, you had the wealthiest cities in the country in the sixties. That the, the twenty five, you know, well, wealthiest city by median income were many of them were in the Midwest. Um, the, the list is, is really kind of astonishing. It's like Cleveland, Milwaukee, um, Des Moines, and Rockford, Illinois um, were on that list. Now there's only a couple uh, non-coastal cities on the list of the top 25. So, um, so you've, the regional gaps have just gotten a lot bigger. And in in my you know, and the the reason I, I settled on Amazon as the frame to tell the story is that it is it is, that is that the the tech economy, big tech, has played a a not a significant role in in that in those growing regional disparities, right? And your your uh, chapter on the way that wealth has accumulated to Washington was particularly eye opening to me. The rise of lobby firms and the rise of contractor like co- contracting companies that have now you know made tons and tons of money, uh, basically working for the Department of Defense or. Other agencies. You mentioned there was somebody in a Washington suburb who had built a mansion that was uh, styled off of Versailles. I mean, how yeah. is government money ending up in situations like that? It's crazy to me. 
Yeah, I mean, what's I mean, I was I was I lived in Washington from 2005 to 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 13, and and to see I mean, just so I was there throughout those great recession years, and to see the city get. If anything, the city got even wealthier during the Great Recession. It was just stunning to watch. It was partly because a lot of the stimulus money, um, the Obama stimulus money, kind of stayed in Washington because it, it, it was sort of a lot of it was basically awarded to those big beltway banded contractors like Booz Allen and those guys. They actually administered a lot of the, a lot of that spending for the government, and they just kind of took their cut off the top. And so a lot of the money stayed right there, and those 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 glass cubes that you see when you're driving around the beltway or you're driving out the Dulles toll road, you see just mm. these, you know, those, those cubes with those, those middlemen. It's a middleman economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And right. And, yeah. and so I mean, what, what, what's happened in Washington is just in, incredible that you have this place that was always that we, we, we sort of deliberate, we created it to be to, deliberately created to be not a, to be sort of just this, just the capital. It's supposed to be this place that we, we had our sort of our merchant, our glittering merchant cities already by that point. But Washington was not going to be that. It was going to be a place that um, that would would have you know the government buildings to sort of administer administer the our our, our new our new federal government. But it was not supposed to be um, sort of a um, there's a reason we made it its own thing. It was it was it was just supposed to be this thing fraught for the whole country. That sort of represented us and, and did our business, our government business, and that was that. And and now, but it's it's been transformed by by you know, two main dynamics these last few decades: the incredible growth in the influence industry, the lobbying industry, and then the incredible growth of the homeland security apparatus after 9-11, um, where you just this sprawl of of um, of contractors and large and small. And then, and then, of course, that in turn further fueled the influence industry because you have to pay for the influence to get the contracts. And and so now you have DC as just this extraordinarily wealthy place with five or six of the ten richest counties in the country in the metro DC area, and just all the all the trappings of of extreme wealth. The the one that I think might be my favorite is the um, there's a restaurant in DC where where children, when you come with your kids, wealthy family come with your kids, they can, they can, you know, pick uh, non-alcoholic cocktails off of a cocktail cart. The waiter brings by, you know, a cocktail cart for the kids, and so you know, they pick right. their like, and it's $10. like twelve dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this is a point I think we should seize on because I think oftentimes, you know, what's lost in this conversation about big tech, of course, and we'll spend time talking about, it, of course, the tech companies have done what they do, but also they're existing in a political system that, you know, is, I don't know, fairly corrupt and has created the economic conditions that have incentivized this bigness and allowed this bigness to happen. You know, there was an interesting thing that just reading through your book, talking about how Amazon fulfillment centers are now on the land that Bethlehem Steel was. And it struck me that we're talking about fulfillment versus production. And it's not industry. It's, um, you know, not U.S. industry. It's our, our our big companies are now just shipping out products that are made in other countries. And yep. what? So what happened in in the U.S. Um, that made Amazon and made fulfillment become this critical employer versus production? And corollary to that, you know, I, 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 the the steel jobs that you write about, um, places like in Bethlehem Steel. You know, people were getting killed often. You know, even one of your main characters got his arm burned off pretty much. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I'd like to know how we shifted from industry to fulfillment as like what we think of as the top U.S. companies. And then also like, are these jobs actually that much worse than, than the dangerous jobs that were here before? I, just as a quick aside, the, the, the fact that we're now, that these, in these warehouses now, on the same piece of land, just basically packing things that are made elsewhere. I was struck when I came to the one time when I visited the warehouse at, at Sparrows Point, where the Beth Steel plant used to be, and they were sitting in the this big kind of swampy piece of land alongside the warehouse. Um, it was just this random, massive shipping container, like, a, and it said on it, you know, it was almost as it says like China shipping um, mm-hmm. 
forget what you know which which you know shipping line that is um but it was just sitting there all by itself this massive um you know one of those enormous steel containers like straight off the, straight off a ship just kind of ruined in, 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 the, in the swamp there um it's kind of eerie um but no i mean this the story of how of course there are many many others have told the story of 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 how we lost that manufacturing base and lost those those kind of jobs. I, I tell that part of the story in the book, both through both through what happened at Beth Steel and also what happened in the auto manufacturing sector in in Southwest Ohio, where where in the in the Dayton area you just had this incredible supply chain of of um, auto parts manufacturing. Um, Dayton was the basically the second largest auto industry town after after Detroit, um, and you had this you know all this traffic kind of going up and down I, the I seventy five corridor from you know Flint all the way down through Detroit down to down to Dayton and then Toledo, all those all these manufacturers large and small that kind of fed that supply chain, and and you know there's all of course there's a lot of talk about NAFTA still and anger about NAFTA. And a lot of those jobs did move down to Mexico, but 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 you talk to the economists, and they really they they think if anything the effect of China joining the WT, WTO in in two thousand one was even bigger in these communities. And there's you know been it's been well documented by guys like David Autor at MIT just what an incredibly devastating effect. Um, that that admission of China to the WTO had on places like Dayton, and, and just how disproportionate the effect was uh, on places that were ha- relied heavily on manufacturing. And you look at the numbers of what happened in Southwest Ohio in um, in the first decade of the century, and the, the the job losses are stunning. I mean, you, you can track it in job losses. You can track it in the 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 reduction in simply of use of power in in Ohio was that you could like track just how much less industrial power like electricity was being used because they simply didn't need it anymore. All these things are just shut down. And um, and the, one of my I don't get into this in the book, but it, um, I I interviewed um, recently a couple years ago. I interviewed that guy who's a lot of people know him from the the the, the documentary American Factory about the the Chinese auto glass plant that's now come into the former GM plant outside Dayton. And there's this incredible, you know, this Chinese billionaire who owns this company now in, in, in Dayton. And I interviewed him also for a documentary that I did helped out with. And he was just kind of mocking us as a country for having let our manufacturing base wither. And um, he was kind of laughed, cackling about it. It was an extraordinary moment in, in this, in this documentary. Um, and you know, basically saying, "Look, you just—that's why we're here because you left, you let it all go." Um, so, so the, you know, that brings us to the jobs themselves. Um, the, I, you know, I take pains in the book not to glorify that industrial work. I get go into great detail about just how treacherous the, the work was, um, and just you know, describe a lot of these different injuries and and um, and yet the the man that I focus on. Bill Bodani um, has endured several injuries himself, and one of which basically finally leads to his retirement. But um, but I do think that you talk to these men, and mostly men, of course, and you talk to them about their own experiences, their own work, and uh, and you hear from a lot of these guys still in Baltimore. They're often on the radio, you know, kind of reminiscing, and and it's just really striking to hear that while they talk about how how hot and dirty and difficult and often, often dangerous the work was that they still found took incredible pride in it and, and found immense value in it, both in the work itself, the fact that they were making something, they were running steel and, and, and the fact that, and, and, and the sort of fellowship and camaraderie they felt with, with the other guys on the job. And, and so, and then of course, on top of that, they were being paid very well for it. And and though that combination of of being paid a living middle class wage of you know, 
30 or $40 an hour of good benefits and having a real say on the job and, and then actually making something, taking pride in what you're in, in, in the, the, the actual work you're doing, having something to show for at the end of the day. And, and then, and then actually having, having some kind of real social, um, uh, fellowship in the workplace. Those are all things that are missing now in, in the warehouse work. So the warehouse work is less, is certainly less treacherous. It's physically taxing, but less treacherous. Um, but there's just much less, uh, much less meaning and, and, and value to it. And there's a reason. So there's a reason why people, are, there's a hundred percent turnover in the warehouses, 100% every single year. And, and whereas, um, you know, guys spent years working, working in, at a place like Beth Steele, and that's that's not an accident, right? And, and I think that this is a moment where we sort of take a step back and ask, what's happening to our political system itself? You know, it seems like it's no wonder to me that um, lots of people in this country feel sold out by the political establishment. You look at Washington. We talked about Washington. It's because what do you say? Six of ten of the wealthiest counties in the U.S. are there. You have both. You have the de- you know Republicans party of business, the Democrats, extremely cozy with these tech companies. Clinton signed NAFTA, you know, um, we got close. Yeah, the WTO deal for for sure, revolving door between uh, the Obama administration and these tech companies. Jay Carney, Biden, and then Obama's spokesperson going to Amazon. David Pluff going to Uber, which just you know was behind Prop 22, which rolled back or, or prevented, you know, s- some serious worker rights from being granted to delivery drivers and 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 uh, and, and Uber drivers and Lisa Jackson. Cheryl, Cheryl Samberg going to Facebook. I forgot. I didn't mention her in the book. Yeah, who was also was in the Clinton White House. And then yeah. Lisa Jackson, EPA going to Apple. <laughs> I mean, uh, unbelievable. And then there's another one we're going to talk about in a bit and wrong. Um, but let's put, put let's pause on that for a moment. But you, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I I imagine if you had one of these jobs where you were working in industry, making 30, 40 an hour, and now you look at the federal government, you know, it's minimum wage is $7.25, which to me is unbelievably ridiculous in this day and age. Uh, and then, you know, you have, and, and then you have these, these politicians sending trade deals, and then you have all their cronies getting rich. And it, it just, to me, it's unbelievable. And, and of course, it's going to lead to a sense of displacement among people. What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and of course, it, of course, it plays a role in, in the 2016 election. I mean, you see, if you're, if you're a former, you know, working class, white working class Democrat, you see, you see what's happened to your, to your job, your town, and your community in Southwest Ohio or wherever it is. And then you see these dazzling cities that are now full of to quote Democrat. The Democrats are now the party of those dazzling places of the Washington DCs and, and the Silicon Valleys and the Seattle's and the Boston's where, where things are just going incredibly well, going well to, 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 to almost to a fault. And, and, and you, you, it makes you angry. It makes you feel alienated. It makes you, and you certainly makes you feel like that that's no longer your party because those people, I mean, like the Jay Carneys, like they have nothing to do with you. And, and then, you know, they, you see them, they might come to your town, you know, with, with a candidate as, as, you know, as the, you'll see these, these kind of hangers on come to your town. And they, I, I always think of it as like the fancy glasses rule. Like you see these people coming to town with these, these stylish glasses, you know, and whether it's media or, or, or political people, and you're like, who are those people? I have nothing to do with them. They're like from a, they're completely different. You know, you feel this gulf between you and them. I just remember, I still, I always like, think back to watching that 2016 Democratic convention when when Hillary was nominated, and this the extraordinary triumphalism uh, the, the, around that convention, where of just all these things we'd accomplished, we, you know, Obama kind of ticking off all this, you know, we. It was, everything was going great. We, you know, we, we, we legalized same-sex marriage. We, you know, sort of broadened equality in all these ways. And, and, and all these, you know, these 
things were things were going great in, the, in these cities and and we were back and if you're what it was like i kept thinking what's it like if you're watching this from scranton what's it like if you're watching this from dayton and and you're looking at this and you're thinking we found out this is not this is not how things are where i am yeah and you know you mentioned this on the realignment show i'd, I'd like to get into it a little bit can we talk about the democratic coalition uh, because you, you mentioned it's sort of an Amazon coalition in a sense, right? You have people in urban cities who are going to vote blue, who are using Amazon to get packages delivered for, to them. And then you're going to have, you know, the workers in the fulfillment centers who are supposed to be their natural allies, you know, where, and the drivers, right, who are working their asses off. And, you know, some people having to pee in bottles to get these packages. And, you know, it just strikes me that, oh, these folks are supposed to be natural political allies but it seems like there's some tension there something that doesn't fully connect absolutely i mean it's it it is it does not seem like a very sustainable coalition it seems certainly awkward and it's but it is essentially what the democratic party is now becoming and you have you have the party just now being incredibly um strong with with the highly educated kind of metro uh voter um the, the parties are sorting out are more and more by education even more than by you know by, by, by income now they're sort of by education levels and as as more and more of these kind of romney republicans have moved over to the party you just have the the democratic party incredibly strong with exactly the demographic that amazon is very strong with amazon is Popular, you know, obviously across the board, but it's but it does best with the middle of our upper middle class metro consumer. Walmart still holds, holds its own, you know, out in the hinterland, but but Amazon just is just crushing it in 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 the big blue cities, and and so um, so you have that consumer who's now the the sort of the the dominant demographic in the Democratic Party, and then alongside the the Democratic Party still does like you know, just still still have, does have a working class base of black and brown voters, black and Latino voters, and um, and those a lot of those voters populate the Amazon workforce in the cities, in in the fulfillment centers, and in the trucks, and so you have. That's why I call it the Amazon Coalition. You have a party made up of the Amazon consumer who is just one-clicking everything, um, whether it's from Amazon or from food delivery or Uber or whatever. They've just kind of gone whole whole hog into that kind of life. And then you have the people who are who are doing the work for them, the driving and, and the packing. And, and and that, of course, that that the awkwardness of that coalition, that coalition grew even more awkward this past year. Um, when when you had mm. the the consumer go even more fully into that existence, and the risk of the work being done by the packers and the drivers uh, was was greater, and so during the pandemic, it was already an awkward, it was already an awkward class coalition. But now you had this real kind of um, awkwardness around the risk being accepted by by the deliverers, and you just wonder how long this this can this can last. Right. So let's talk about like the people that, that like the end users of Amazon, you know, the people that are living that one click life as you, as you call it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about them because is it, you know, their, their embrace of these services. I'm, I mean, I'm myself a member of Amazon prime, right? I think we have more people that are members of Amazon prime than our, you know, cable subscribers in the U S right now. More than go to more, church. More things on prime than, than vote in midterm elections. Than vote in elections, right? So the folks that are that are so enthusiastically embracing the one-click lifestyle, is it like hypocrisy where it's like I care about worker rights, but I'm also going to use Amazon? Is it suspension of disbelief? What's going on there? Like, it seems like some sort of cognitive dissonance. Maybe you can help me understand myself a little better by, by answering this one. I mean, this is the, you know, this is a question that goes beyond my book, to be honest. This is a question that's, you know, this is this is a question for our novelists, too. This is a question for David Foster Wallace and Jonathan Franzen. Like, how did the American, yes, how did the American consumer become so incredibly um, attached to sort of, you know, kind of instant gratification and 
cheap consumer lifestyle where we're seeing seeing the low price and the the promise of rapid delivery lights something up in your in the brain. I mean, yeah, um, but you've been watching it, so yeah. But I was just saying that it's this. This is you must have some thoughts on it. I do have thoughts on it, and but they're I have to be careful how I say it because it's mm-hmm. you know you you don't want to come off um, you know as sort of moralizing and um, and, and righteous about it. So I'm always careful to, to you know say that I'm not. It's not about absolutism or boycotts or anything like that but it is about like some kind of moderation and scale i mean what happened this past year was just off the charts i mean the degree to which the degree to which you know this the one-click life was embraced was just extraordinary there were these the numbers their growth was off the charts like they were already big and they have sales then go up 40 or 50 percent as they did um that you know, that was, that was all of us in a way, like doing that. And even, you know, arguably in excess even of, of what was sort of kind of required by the public health edicts, mm-hmm. um, the, the degree to which um, a whole lot of us decided just to completely go whole hog that route and just without even, you know, just it's as soon as we had the permission to do it, kind of, that we felt that we had the, the, the epidemiological permission to do it. We just, with, with this, what alacrity, we, we embraced it. And, and and you do see a lot of people now talking about the fact that they don't want to give it up, like that they really have just, you know, even now as, as it grows less necessary, that they've just really kind of um, become wedded to, to that that kind of existence. And and so, yes, I don't know if you, if it's hypocrisy or if it's just um, a lack of imagination, not, not, not wanting to, to think about the consequences at all. And it's not, it's not just the consequences of, you know, that worker and who's, who's doing all your dirty work for you, though that, that's a big part of it. It's also the consequences to, you know, to all, to all, the, all the businesses in, in the place where you live, the landscape in the place where you live, the, the vacancies the tax base that's being eroded, um, you know, by, 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 by this kind of living, the, um, it's just, it's just a complete kind of blocking that all out. And, and this book is partly an appeal to, to that person to, to just, Mm -hmm. to, to think a little harder more broadly and, and and connect, make connections. It's all about making connections. It's about connecting our actions with, with consequences. And so I, I really, I, I just, I, I really do hope that, that coming out of this moment that we are able to, to somehow re-engage with the world around us and not just with our shopping, but. I mean, I, yeah, I'm not here to moralize, definitely not the goal of the show. Um, it's not, but I, I also think part of what we want to do on this podcast is ask some of those tougher questions that people that we do dance around because they're uncomfortable. And this certainly seems like one of them. And definitely the the growing and I don't blame, I mean, I think it's been clear in this conversation. I don't personally blame Amazon. You know, Amazon was made the villain, but Amazon operates in a system. And the system is governed by political choices. Uh, you know, obviously it takes two to tango, but um it just does seem that eventually it, it, this you know, this stuff all ends with po- ends up with politics. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, you talked about how this democratic coalition isn't sustainable because, you know, I, I mean, or might not be sustainable, you know, given given what the workers are experiencing. And it, it does, like, every time I think about this, I just say, okay, does this end in revolt in some way? Like, it just doesn't seem like a very sustainable place for a society to be where you have, you know, where you have this situation, uh, where where you know folks are in these grueling conditions, and and they don't seem to have like a a group in politics that are actually looking out for them in a meaningful way. No, I mean, but but uh, you know, arguably, we already had a revolt. You know, it's yeah, no doubt. But like, does where you know? It, it, I guess suppose that you know the revolt. I think I'm, I imagine you're talking about the Trump election. Um, I, I don't think that's an endpoint in time, right? This, uh, the problem isn't solved now that 
now that we're past that point in history. And then the next big political question really is, is in a sense, whether that, whether you're going to see what's going to happen. We talk about the awkwardness of this unsustainability of this coalition. Is it, is it unsustainable to the point where you actually are going to see um, the, some of these black and Latino workers who populate the warehouses and the trucks grow so resentful of the people that they're, that they're bringing this stuff to um, that they actually um, start to, to, to move the other way. Um, and, and there were some signs last fall that that was starting to happen. You know, with, right. The Republican party with increased Trump doing better, surprisingly well with, with Latino voters and even some black, black men. And I see just as likely as that, as that kind of shift, I, I would say would be that a lot of these, those workers just kind of express their resentment by dropping out and not showing up to the polls. Right. Becoming just fully kind of alienated from the whole, from the system. But, but that is, that really, it is something that, that, that Democrats need to worry about. So it's, is is the, the, the science that the Republicans incredibly, you know, if you think about where sort of what they stand for and where they've come from, that they, mm-hmm. that they might be able to, to over time amass some kind of a multiracial working class coalition. Um, I mean, that's definitely after the, after 2020, that's what they were heralding. And it right. is, it seems like a product of, of the society where, you know, we seem to have elite checking the elite, uh, wanting, saying they want the system to change, but not really wanting the system to change. And actually, you know, I didn't expect this, but I ended up seeing your book as kind of one in a continuum of others that I've read with similar messaging. Um, and I'm talking about uh, Winners Take All by Anand Giridas, which talks yeah. about how like, you know, the biggest charitable organizations are like, we're going to help. And of course, it's important to give charity, but like, you know, their preference to do it, to change society through charity that keeps the system in place versus right. change the system. And then the meritocracy trap, which I also saw as like, we talk about a meritocracy, but um, education, the investment in education uh, makes a big difference. And there's, it's so disproportionate. Right. And then you, oh, and sorry, then you look at the, I just watched the college admission scandal documentary on Netflix. Yes. And it all seems to be sort of tying into this whole thing where like, you know, we're taught what we're talking about here is really the American dream. Right. And it's seeming to many to, you know, there, there'd be cracks in it. And it's seeming like the country in some ways, I mean, obviously more even than probably almost anywhere else in the world. Great, great entrepreneurial environment here, but it's also seeming to be more of a two-class system uh, than, right. than, I don't know, I mean, obviously, like, it was like this in the past, and there was never a perfect America, but, um, but man, it's just, it just hits you in the face when you look at what's happening right now. Exactly. I know I see those, I absolutely see the books, those books all, all tied together. I, I actually participated in a, I was in a, um, kind of a workshop session for the meritocracy trap when it was, when, when Dan was, Daniel was writing it. Daniel Markovitz um, who wrote meritocracy trap. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I see them all connected probably because it's all about, it's all so much of it is about, you know, this new class of sort of high, super highly educated middle upper middle class, mostly white liberals. Um, not only, you know, sort of, um, detaching in terms of, um, just their their income and their prospects, but also just physically detaching, like the the, the extent to which mm-hmm. we've kind of sealed each, ourselves off, and and where we live, and where our kids go to school, and and um, you know I talk about this in, in, in fulfillment that there's that that there's now much more sorting. Upper middle class people are now much more likely to live amongst other upper middle class people than used to be the case. There used to be much more of a willingness to live in more mixed income neighborhoods. And now we are, we are clustering ourselves around our own to, to, store, to a storing degree. And then you add on top of that, the, the one click kind of life where you don't even have to go out to, to interact um, with, with people at the store or otherwise. And, and you are, so you are whatever minimal interaction you might've been once been having with people unlike yourself, or is even less likely now is really is just that driver who is, who is pulling up and maybe you acknowledge him, maybe you don't, 
um, as you're sitting there at your laptop and he's and he's coming up the walk. Um, I mean, that is it now. And it's it's so it's so unhealthy. Yep. Okay, I know we're running out of time. I want to end, uh, you know, on one story about um, about this back and forth between government and these big tech companies. And I used the word corruption earlier, and I don't use that word lightly, but it yeah. sure seems like that's what it is. And c- can you just close telling us the story of uh, Obama's former head of procurement, Anne Rung? And how she went to Amazon business and basically rigged the system to get Amazon all these big, big contracts. Sure, I mean it's just it's, it's extraordinary how how blatant this 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 story is. Um, you know this this person Anne Rung who worked her way up the the ladder in government was an incredibly competent, capable um, person toiling in this you know very kind of obscure world of of government procurement. The, the, the people who who buy all the the office supplies and desks and and real estate space and all, everything that's needed to to make a government run. She started out in in the Pennsylvania state government, toiled there in obscurity for years under Governor Governor Rendell, and then she was she came to Washington when Obama was elected and she worked her way up in the federal government um, to the point where she was finally you know just really pretty much at the top of um, of the federal government procurement process in the White House and overseeing just billions of, ac- of acquisitions and every year. And, um, you know, very much, very admired, you know, was, was managing to, trying to make things more efficient and reduce costs in various ways and, um, and really seen as sort of a, you know, kind of a star as much as one can be in, in such a kind of, gray kind of realm of government and and then all of a sudden um just like that she announced that she was leaving to go uh it was just a, this is about a year before last year the obama administration she announces that she's leaving to go work for amazon um and going goes to seattle and and is and goes to work for exactly the um this new part of amazon that had been set up to to get um, to get big government procurement contracts to, to sell to the public sector at all, at all levels of the public sector from from federal down to, to local um, and Amazon just saw this as a as a big new market um, essentially to get people to to get government officials at all levels to to do one click purchasing just the way they would at home you know for their for their home needs to start mm-hmm. doing all their government buying that way as well. And um, in using her, and it was especially crucial to have her there because they because they were in the midst, Amazon was in the midst of basically making a move on um, an actual sort of lobbying move to to get the federal government to shift over to that kind of approach to, to buying and, and 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 did so through the was through the um, one of the big defense authorization bills that they were um, that we, you know, have every couple of years to authorize our billions in spending on on the military, and, and in one of, in one of those defense authorization bills, there was a fight to to slip in language, basically creating um, a, a new a new new option to buy tons of stuff from simply from the Amazon instead of going through sort of the usual mm. procurement process, and and she was in contact with people in the government, you know, seemingly in in violation of. Of, of the rules about officials having to have a cooling off period um, after they leave the government before reestablishing contact um, with their former colleagues. And um, I reached, she made clear, I reached out to her, of course, for the, for the book. I even, gosh, I emailed her. I, think I even wrote her at home um, just to do make every effort to reach her, try to reach her through the company and, and never was able to, to, to speak to her about her role and um, but this is yeah this is a huge thing for the for the company. I and then I describe this incredible scene in El Paso where a bunch of, of executives at Amazon, not Anne Rung, but some people just below her, um, come to El Paso to to basically um, pressure a bunch of office supply dealers in El Paso to to to, to sell through the marketplace mm-hmm. through Amazon marketplace. Um, 
in their attempt to basically get the local the local governments there to to start doing their buying through Amazon. And um, and one of those people actually those those executives who came to Amazon to El Paso to, to pressure the office supply dealers um, was the former head of procurement for all of King County in, in Seattle. Uh, so there's just all these people who've been kind of coming from government into Amazon to to sort of help grow that that big part of the business. So in the past, there might have been office supply companies that sold directly to the government. Actually, you know, exactly sell it at a fair price. Now Amazon is hiring hiring procurement people from the government, basically <laughs> helping them win custom made RFPs request for proposals to be the government's official suppliers and then co-opting the office supply folks who used to have these contracts and taking 15% off the top, which is essentially their margin. Money right. goes to Amazon. <laughs> and then these, right. these small and medium-sized businesses who depended on this stuff end up you know, either collapsing or, or uh, losing the margin that they were making. Exactly. And there's less, less tax right the local tax base and, and, and basically just sucks that money to seattle yeah and you wonder why the middle class and small business is struggling in, in the country and amazon is a one point something trillion dollar company and it doesn't happen by accident i mean of course like i've wrote in my book always day one there's definitely some business innovation a lot of business innovation that happens there but there's an uglier side to it as well and i think it's important that you explored it Alec. exactly Okay, the book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. It's a great book. Uh, you should pick it up. I saw that you guys were advertising on Amazon, by the way. So even you are <laughs> part of um, – part. Uh, Amazon has you guys in your in its grip as well. <laughs> I ordered from them just as a yeah. test, and my, but the, the book came a week late. It was oh. very mysterious. <laughs> hmm, wonder what's going on there. Well, I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, thanks again for, for joining, Alec. Great to talk to you about it. Uh, yeah. I wish you – uh, a lot of luck, uh, you know, right. in this in this environment. And um, yeah, I want to say thank you to Nate Guatney, who's going to edit this in a very quick turnaround. Thank you, Nate. Um, thanks to Red Circle for hosting and selling ads, and thanks to all of you uh, for listening every week here Wednesdays. Uh, if this is your first time here, please uh, subscribe. We have new conversations with insiders, tech insiders, and outside agitators. And if you're a longtime listener, a rating goes a long way. So would appreciate it if you could do that. And uh, yeah, and thanks again to Alec. We will see you all next Wednesday. Have a good one. And until then, wishing you well.